I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. We are going to be finishing up uh, chapter 4 today, verses 21 through to 31. In these verses, Paul continues to impress upon us the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus by faith. And he does this once again by appealing to the book of Genesis, uh, instructing us from uh, God's word in the Old Testament. So let's uh, read. We're going to begin in verse 21. We'll read through to verse 31. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In these verses, Paul draws a lesson from two women and their offspring. Hagar, on the one hand, with her son Ishmael, and Sarah, on the other hand, with her son Isaac. And in both of these boys were physical offspring of Abraham. They had Abraham as their father, their literal father. And the text that we're looking at, it raises some questions. It's uh, not... It's a bit challenging, uh, this text. And yet at the same time, the ultimate point that Paul is making is really not that complicated. And so even as we go through this and we zoom in a little bit and, and examine some of the trees, if you will, hopefully we will not need to lose the forest uh, as we examine this and try to answer maybe some of the difficult questions that arise in this text. Uh, the, the main point, the ultimate lesson he's, he's Making here for us is not that hard, I don't think. And this is what it is. Uh, The comparison between Hagar and Sarah presses home the importance, necessity, and superiority of receiving God's promised blessing of salvation by faith alone. This is as God intends it to be. He's just continuing to press home this point he has been making throughout Galatians. 
And it also warns against the attempt to secure that blessing of salvation by sinful human effort, which is something that man has a tendency to do, reject the way God has prescribed and try to do it a different way. As we have seen, God justifies sinners by faith alone. God saves graciously apart from our works. It is a gift that is received by the instrument of faith. We receive these blessings by believing. That's the instrument. We are united to Christ by that faith and we receive all the blessings of that salvation by faith. But the Judaizers, they're the ones in Galatia troubling these people. The Judaizers, as many before them and as many since them, they were rejecting this way that God had ordained by adding certain works of the law to the equation. They were trying to obtain the blessing a different way. And Paul has been showing and he continues to show today that the reality is, though they seek that blessing through their works, that actually just simply leaves them in a state of slavery. So, By way of illustration, if I think that electricity should function a particular way, and so I wire my house according to that understanding, but if in fact my understanding is wrong, it doesn't matter how much I believe it, it doesn't matter if that makes sense to me that it should work this way, the reality is it's not going to work. And in fact, I would be in great danger at that point. It could end very disastrously. And those who believe that some works contribute in some foundational way to our attaining the blessing of God, the gospel blessing, they do this same sort of thing. It might seem right. It might seem to make sense to you, but it is not God's way and it won't work. It will only end in slavery now and judgment in the life to come if it is not repented of. This is a different gospel, as Paul has laid out in chapter 1, that is in fact no good news at all. So this text is here again to warn us about that error and to reinforce us in the faith to rejoice in all that Christ has indeed accomplished for us and then freely given to us, that we've received by believing, not by our actions. And so let's begin here, and we're going to first look at two historical sons, two historical sons. So Paul begins in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul is addressing here the Judaizers and those who would follow after them. And when he addresses them as you who desire to be under the law, he is referring to those who desire to come under the law that is under the Mosaic covenant as a covenant of works, whereby their obedience to at least some aspects of the law, things like circumcision, food laws, keeping certain days, etc., they understand that this is helping them to secure their salvation. It helps them to secure their justification. Their position says that law must be kept as some part of the work that we do in order to obtain the ultimate blessing from God. 
They're treating it as if it's something we have to do as almost a payment to make before God. And of course, they may not have said it quite that starkly, but what Paul is showing us is that that's the logical conclusion of what they're saying. To them, faith is not sufficient. We must do other things in order to really make sure we secure the blessing. We've got to be circumcised. We've got to come under this Mosaic law and keep certain elements of it at least. Then we'll get the blessing. So being under the law here, as Paul is using it in verse 21, uh, this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. And so he, he's not referring here, when he says being under law, he's not referring to the believer who has the attitude where they say, God has just been so gracious to me in Christ Jesus and uh, I see now that his ways are, are good and his law is upright and it is good for me to worship God alone and, uh, and to worship him as he tells me to worship. And it's good for me to then love my neighbor, to be faithful to my spouse, to not covet my neighbor's things, etc., to, to not murder or hate others around me. I see this and I, I, out of thankfulness and gratitude for God and his grace and kindness to me, I desire to do my best to to obey him in these things. Um, that's not what Paul is condemning here, that kind of attitude. That is a, a good attitude of one who has received God's grace, who has been born again. Um, that is not seeking to uh, earn something before God by that obedience. It's just responding in gratitude and acknowledging that God's ways are good and, and desiring to obey such as we are able. That's not what Paul is attacking. He's attacking here those who would find some aspect of their justification grounded in that obedience to the law. That they are looking to that obedience as a support that's going to help them to be saved. It's part of the grounds or the instrument by which they're receiving salvation. That's what Paul is condemning. That's what he means here by you who desire to be under the law. It is a covenant which, by which you work in order to receive the reward. And so he asks them, you desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? So I think what he means here is, do you not listen to the voice of Moses? You say you like the Mosaic covenant. Well, do you listen to the law of Moses? Have you read the books of Moses? Do you listen to what they say? And he goes on in verse 22, Paul does, for it is written... So now he gives us a text uh, from the book of Genesis written by Moses. Go listen to Moses. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And he is, of course, referring here to the events of Genesis 16, which we read earlier and then to 21. He's referring to two sons, namely to Ishmael, who was born to Abraham by Sarah's Egyptian servant or slave, Hagar. And the other son is Isaac, who was born to the free woman, namely Abraham's wife, Sarah. Then Paul goes on in verse 23. But the son of the slave, uh, sorry, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. 
So he has these two sons, but there's a tremendous difference here. God had promised to Abraham and Sarah a son, and then actually many offsprings who would outnumber the sand on the seashore. And yet they were made to wait quite a few years before they would even have one son. God didn't bring about his plan right away. He didn't. He told them what was going to happen, but then he waited. There was delay. He didn't give them a child right away. And this was clearly a difficulty for Abraham and Sarah. And so in that waiting, in Genesis 16, we see Sarah concocted this plan for Abraham to have a child through her slave woman. And Abraham foolishly and sinfully agreed to this. And so Hagar bore to Abraham Ishmael, this son, Ishmael. So what Paul means here when he says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh is that he was born as the result of sinful efforts to obtain God's promise. Okay, to be born according to the flesh here, he's not just saying he was born according to the normal course of matters. He's saying he was born in a sinful manner, sinful manner. So if, if you uh, flip, if you want, to Galatians 5.19, there Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And what's the first work he gives? Sexual immorality. Right? Abraham and Sarah are waiting and waiting and waiting. They're past the age of having children. Nothing has happened yet. And so they're, they're thinking, well, this promise has been made. It's not going to come through Sarah at this point. So how is this going to work? Well, maybe, maybe you should take Hagar. And to them, this makes sense. But the reality is their solution is sexual immorality. It's a work of the flesh. And yet they're doing this, thinking this might be the way to obtain the blessing that God had promised to them. And so in this way, Ishmael is born as a result of their sinful efforts to get this blessing from God. He is born according to the flesh. By contrast, on the other hand, Isaac, we're told, was born through promise. So if Ishmael was born through sinful human effort, Isaac was born as one commentator writes, as a result of God's grace in fulfillment of his covenant promise. So again, Abraham and Sarah, they were indeed old. They were past the point of pleasure, we're told, let alone past the point of having a child. And yet God miraculously intervened for them, and he opened Sarah's womb. And down in verse 29 here of chapter 4, it says that Isaac was born according to the Spirit. One child, Ishmael, is the result of human conniving in order to try and get what God has promised. The other was the result of God's grace and power as God kept his promise. One is received by trying to make this thing happen through their own efforts. The other is received by believing and waiting upon God. We might chastise Abraham and Sarah as we think about their sin here. It seems like such a terrible and obviously awful solution to the problem. And yet for them, they're, again, very old. He's 100 by the time Abraham is, by the time Isaac is born. This, 
This, they understood this doesn't happen anymore. We're done having children. And yet this promise, of, we maybe could have at least you know, some measure of sympathy as we consider um, what they were facing and the, really the impossibility at that point of having a child. But nevertheless, they were to wait. And eventually God did fulfill his promise to them and they had a child of promise, namely Isaac. And so hopefully you can start to see here how Paul is using this account in the Galatian controversy. Beware of trying to obtain by sinful and unlawful fleshly efforts what God gives graciously by promise and is received by faith. This is what the legalist does. They seek to establish their own righteousness instead of receiving the righteousness of God by faith. So we have the two historical sons. Now we have two different covenants. Two different covenants. In verse 24, it says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. This reference to allegory here might be troubling to some. It certainly brought about a lot of uh, debate about this matter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just uh, a couple of, of quick things. Uh, typically, when we think of an allegory, we think of a fictitious story that is meant to teach us something true, something that is real. Uh, so an example would be the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's obviously you know, not a true story. It's obviously a fake story, a fiction. Um, And yet, it is designed to teach us about spiritual truths, about spiritual matters. So that's often what we think of. It's a fake story teaching us something real. Uh, But Paul does not use it that way. He is not suggesting here that the story of Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael Ishmael and, and Isaac, this is just a fake story that's just simply allegory. That's not what he means by it. In this instance, he is taking actual history... And he is saying that it is illustrating to us other biblical truths. Now, a question arises, debate ensues. Is this merely Paul using this as a helpful illustration? Just he's wanting to make a point and he sees in Hagar and Sarah, hey, this will work. This will be helpful uh, in trying to just illustrate my point. Or is this a deep, is there a deeper significance here? that wouldn't necessarily have been obvious to the first readers of Genesis. It seems to me that Paul is suggesting the latter, that this is intentionally in the inspired text, that Hagar and Sarah serve as types and figures of these two covenants that he's going to get into, namely the old covenant and the new. And Ishmael and Isaac serve as types prefigures of the people within those covenants. Abraham's physical offspring under the Sinai covenant and his spiritual offspring under the new covenant, which we'll get to in a moment. But either way, Paul is using this account clearly to teach us about the difference between two covenants. He says as much. They represent two covenants. The first covenant is the old covenant represented by Hagar, So continuing in verse 24, he says, One covenant 
is from Mount Sinai. So that's referring to the Sinai covenant, uh, sometimes referred to it as the Mosaic covenant or perhaps even the Old Covenant. Just I'm using those basically uh, synonymously. So one covenant that these ladies represent is from Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. So Hagar was a slave woman, as we've read. And Paul says here that she represented, she represents the Mosaic Covenant, which bears children for slavery. So I think this is another way of Paul saying what he has already stated and we've already looked at back in chapter 3. So if you look back at verse 23, he says, Now before faith came, and remember that's the coming of Christ and the uh, installation of the new covenant, the, the formal bringing about of the new covenant. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The Sinai law covenant brought with it a slavery. It imprisoned a people under it. And the present Jerusalem, as Paul writes this, he says, is still in slavery. That is, he's talking about the Jews who have rejected Christ and who insist on the continuation of the Mosaic Covenant. They, he says, remained enslaved. They have rejected God's righteousness by faith that was clearly now seen and proclaimed in through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one foretold, this ultimate offspring of Abraham to come. They've rejected the righteousness that comes by faith in him, and they are seeking to establish their own by their works. And this is precisely what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. In verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? Answer, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then a few verses later in Romans 10.3, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God which is the righteousness we receive by believing in Christ Jesus, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own by their works of the law, they, the Jewish people, did not submit to God's righteousness, which is that which comes by faith. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So as Paul is presenting this, he very clearly sees the Judaizers as another form of this. They might profess a faith in Christ Jesus, but they're still ultimately seeking to establish their own righteousness by works of the law. They're attempting to gain the promise of God in a way that is not intended by God. They are children according to the flesh, just like present Jerusalem. They're the anti-type of Ishmael. 
Now this statement that the Sinai covenant bears children for slavery is a, is a, a bit of a difficult one, and it causes problems for some people. There's different ways that people try to relate the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant and how we try to put together the whole of the Bible. And one of the groups for whom this kind of language of slavery under the Mosaic Covenant, one of the groups for whom I think this causes trouble would be our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers, sisters. So I want to take a few minutes to try to explain um, how many in some of our circles would understand uh, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and then, and then try to explain how I think Paul is laying out for us here in a, in a better way that is more consistent with Scripture. And that happens to be uh, the historically Baptist way of approaching this. So the typical common Reformed teaching here is that there is one covenant of grace that has two different administrations. So what is said then is beginning in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, immediately after the entrance of sin into the world, God begins dealing graciously with humanity. Obviously, that is a true statement. And and by dealing graciously, I mean he's having to pardon sinners, right? Uh, Adam now has to relate to God in a great, God, has, God has to be gracious to Adam. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But then God provides a covering for him. God shows grace to him, doesn't wipe him out right away. Obviously, God is now forgiving sin. And so the argument goes, this is then the beginning of the covenant of grace. If man is to relate rightly with God, it's going to be through this covenant of grace. And this covenant then is administered differently under the Old Testament Versus it under the New Testament. But, they would argue, it is one and the same covenant ultimately. So under the Old Testament administration, people were saved by the Old Covenant. They would say it is administering the grace of Christ to the people by pointing ahead to what Christ would come and accomplish. But then, the New Covenant in the New Testament is understood really just to be a different and better administration of that covenant of grace. So ultimately, this argument here is that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are really two different ways of administering the one covenant of grace. So the ceremonies of the Mosaic Covenant are now gone in the New Testament. We worship in a different manner the way God prescribes in the New Covenant. Um, But it is really ultimately one and the same covenant of grace. But then this kind of statement that we're reading here, and what Paul has even said in chapter 3, that the Mosaic Covenant brings forth children of slavery, that it is a time of imprisonment, and that's part of it, God's purpose in bringing it to be, I think that causes problems for this view. If the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace, How can Paul use this kind of language and speak of it this way here? Or how can he call it the ministry of death as he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? So again, this is one significant difference between those who would be Reformed Baptists and those who would just simply be Reformed. 
Now, the early 17th century Baptists, particular Baptists, they disagreed with their Reformed brothers, their Presbyterian brothers, and their Congregationalist brothers. And I think the Baptists got it right and did a better job of understanding the scriptures on this. And this text we're looking at today was one of the major texts that they appealed to. And so this is reflected in our church's confession of faith. You can read it in chapter 7. And this is one of the significant areas of disagreement, as I said. And so this better view and this, what I'm calling a better understanding of the Baptists, it's just what I think Paul has been writing throughout chapter 3. And now here in chapter 4 just gives further clarity to it. And that is that the new covenant that Christ brought about is the covenant of grace. And it was something that was promised throughout the Old Testament, but it was not formally established until Christ came and established it in his blood. Uh, It was part of the promise of the gospel that was made beginning in Genesis 3.15 that was made to Abraham, which Paul has said was the gospel preached beforehand. And the Old Testament saints, they were saved... Those who were saved were saved by believing in that promise. Abraham, Paul has established, was justified by faith, by believing God's promise of this offspring who would come. And as you go through the Old Testament from Genesis 3 and through Abraham and onward, we find more about this promise. This promise gets further developed. There's further steps laid out. There's more information about it. Given. It is developed through the types and shadows of the Mosaic Covenant. It is revealed in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that this particular offspring is not just a, 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 a son of Abraham or Jacob even, but even more narrowly, it's going to be a son of David. The prophets further spoke of this coming individual. And this coming time, when God would bring about a renewal. Jeremiah himself uses the language of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. That God would establish with his people a covenant in which every single member of that covenant would truly know the Lord. No more would there be a mixed group within the covenant. Some who don't believe and some who do believe. All in this new covenant would indeed know the Lord. And so all of this development and further prophecies about this coming time and this new covenant, all of this continues to develop until such time as the fullness of time came and God sent forth his son, as we saw back earlier in chapter 4. And the son came and established that covenant formally In his blood. And so the Old Testament saints, they were not saved by their adherence to the Mosaic Covenant. They were saved by believing the promise of the Messiah and the salvation that he would bring about. And this is something that was being pointed to by the Mosaic Covenant. Again, Paul has said in chapter 3 that it was designed to make it clear that justification 
is by faith alone in Christ. So the Mosaic Covenant wasn't in itself the covenant of grace. I don't think calling it an administration of the covenant of grace is helpful or accurate. And yet it did still point people to it. It did still prepare people for it. So what Paul is getting at here is that there are ultimately two different covenants that come from Abraham and with it two different offspring, two different types of offspring. There is the old covenant that is established with Abraham's physical descendants. And then there is this new covenant that is established with his spiritual descendants. That is those who believe as Abraham believed. So that old covenant, that included even unbelieving descendants of Abraham. Israelites were required to keep it. They were under its obligations simply by being born as Israelites. Regardless of whether you possessed faith or not, you were within that covenant. You were in it simply by nature of being an offspring of Abraham. And if you were a man, you've been circumcised. You're part of this thing. And so membership in that covenant did not guarantee that one was justified before God. The forgiveness that came through those sacrifices and within that covenant, they dealt in external matters. So we we read last week uh, from Hebrews 9, where it talks about those offerings were for the purification of the flesh. They did not bring about forgiveness in what we might call the heavenly court. So if I might give an example. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was something where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, offering sacrifices and bringing blood. And he did this on behalf of the entire nation. Everyone who was within the Mosaic Covenant, born into it, brought into it, circumcised, if you're male... This Day of Atonement was done on behalf of everybody within that covenant. But it didn't mean that every individual was eternally forgiven by that act of that priest. It didn't secure that for the people. Rather, it was required for the nation to continue to live in the land of Canaan under God's mercy. It was a temporal and an external forgiveness for the people as a whole. How do we know it was temporary? Because they did it again next year. And a year after that, they had to do it every year. So these sacrifices, they couldn't ultimately remove sins, which is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. They couldn't, they had a a purpose for the people of Israel They forgave in an external sense, but they couldn't remove sins in the same way as Christ removed sins. They could not perfect or cleanse the conscience, the internal part of the worshiper. So again, within that old covenant, it was revealing the need for internal righteousness, for true righteousness. It was pointing ahead to Christ through its types and its shadows and prophecies certainly establishes the necessity of righteousness, but it didn't provide internal righteousness nor eternal forgiveness for anyone. 
It was ultimately, it was a covenant of works that governed life in the land of Canaan. If you want to live long in the land, then you keep this law. It wasn't ever a pathway to anyone's justification. It was not meant to be that. Again, this is part of what Paul is getting at. It's imprisonment. It's confining them. The new covenant, the covenant of grace, was not formally brought about until the coming of Christ. But it was something that was promised in the Old Testament. And the true believers in Israel believed this. And on that basis, they were justified. And these are Abraham's true offspring. Those who share his faith. There have always been two different types of offspring. Physical offspring of Abraham and spiritual offspring of Abraham. And of course, one could be both, obviously. But the saints, true people of God, have always been those who believed. And this is why Paul says here that we are offspring of Abraham if we believe as Abraham believed. This is seamless for Paul because this has always been the way. True believers are those who believe. They believe as Abraham believes. They're his spiritual offspring. This is what is behind Paul's statement in Romans 9, verse 6, where he says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Seems a bit of a strange statement on the one hand, maybe initially. He says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The true Israelite is the one who believes as Abraham believed. This is also why Jesus in John chapter 8 tells his opponents that though they are indeed physical offspring of Abraham, he acknowledges it, they are yet, yet in need of being set free. They're enslaved. They say to him, what are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. We're not enslaved to anyone. Jesus disagrees with them. If they were true offspring of Abraham, they would not only believe as he did, but they would do the works that Abraham did. Their faith would be evidenced in their works. But instead, here they are trying to kill the very one promised to Abraham, the ultimate offspring that would come from Abraham. As it stands... Though they are physical descendants of Abraham, Jesus says to them, actually, your father is the devil, he says. They think that their physical descent from Abraham and their circumcision commend them to God. And this is not so. They were physical descendants, but they were not spiritual offspring of Abraham. They were imprisoned under the Mosaic Covenant. The Old Covenant itself didn't save from sin, and it was never intended to do so. It imprisoned. It revealed sin. It pointed to the need for salvation. It typified the coming salvation Christ would bring. But it governed 
life in the land of Canaan for the people of Israel. The people were called to believe God, but it did not provide for them eternal life. And as Paul has said, the purpose of that was to make it ultimately even clearer in the end the necessity of being justified by faith in Christ alone. They couldn't even keep those externals of the law straight. And they missed even what the prophets were pointing to. And so now that Christ has come and the new covenant has been formally established, all that scaffolding that is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is stripped away. It is no more in force. And so in every way, returning to it, as the Judaizers were trying to get these Christians to do, was simply a return to slavery. And so coming back here to verse 26, Sarah allegorically represents the new covenant. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The heavenly Jerusalem is where the spiritual offspring of Abraham have their true citizenship. And it has always been this way. Again, think Hebrews 11, where the faithful of the Old Testament were looking for a greater land, even beyond that of Canaan. The Jerusalem above is a free country, Paul says. Such citizens of it are, as Paul will say in verse 28, like Isaac, children of promise. Members of this covenant are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but are born of God, as John 1 says. Just as Isaac's birth was miraculous, so too those in Christ are miraculously born again by God's Spirit. We do not enter into the new covenant through physical descent, but through being born again, through being spiritually born. Verse 27, Paul supports his statement about the Jerusalem above being a free place and being our mother by quoting Isaiah 54, verse 1. So here's what he says in verse 27 of Galatians 4. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The barren one in Isaiah chapter 54, refers to the people of Israel. And that chapter, which we did read at the start of the service, goes on to promise an eternal covenant of peace, one in which all members of it will be taught by the Lord and will be truly established in righteousness. This is not something the old covenant did. Moreover, it is described as a city walled by precious stones, very similar to what we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 18, when it speaks of the new creation and the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of the sky. All of this was contained in the promise that God made to Abraham to bless the nations of the earth through his offspring. And that covenant that is promised is not the Mosaic Covenant. It is the new covenant that Christ brought about. And just as Abraham participated in that by believing God, so too today 
All those who believe in Christ Jesus are freed from sin and made heirs of God, granted eternal life, simply through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. And we dare not say it otherwise. We dare not set this aside and try to obtain that blessing through some other way. It has only always been received by faith alone. Spiritual offspring of Abraham have all that we need by virtue of our faith in Christ Jesus and our union with him. And even our striving and effort to war with sin and to love righteousness does not add to this or does not beef up anything. If we are citizens of the Jerusalem above, it is purely because God has graciously given that to us as a gift of his grace in faith. So that's the two different covenants. And then finally, just briefly, the present application. Paul says in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. So in Genesis 21.9 we read that Ishmael laughed at Isaac when he'd been weaned. And it is quite likely that that laughter there is a form of mockery. There's some sort of, there's some enmity, evidently, between Ishmael and Isaac. And Paul refers to this as persecution. Now, some speculate that maybe Ishmael had other plans to do greater harm than just simply mock or laugh at Isaac, but we don't know that for sure. But it's interesting to note that mockery, laughter here, is considered persecution by Paul. Paul says, so now also children of the enslaved woman, that is the unbelieving Jews, persecute the children of promise, the Christians, just as it was back then, so too it is now. And Paul knew this persecution very well. He often had Jews stir up the crowds against him. In fact, in Galatia itself, this very thing happened and Paul was stoned. He continues, verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman. And her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Sarah wanted to cast Hagar and Ishmael out. And while Abraham, we read in Genesis 21, was displeased by that, God actually confirmed to Abraham that that very thing should happen, saying, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac is the child of promise. And this is not going to be confused with Ishmael and Isaac in the same, under the same roof. And so God says, indeed, send him away. Now that seems to us something that's immoral or harsh, which I think is, would be an understandable initial reaction. God very clearly says that he'll take care of Ishmael and Hagar. And we read that he did that very thing. Uh, he, he made um, many descendants to come from Ishmael as well. He took care of Hagar and Ishmael as well. And so it's not abandonment, but it is a unique situation to preserve the promised line 
and to distinguish the child of promise from the child of the flesh. And Paul's conclusion here is that by faith in Christ, we are children of the free woman. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. We are true Israel, true sons of Abraham. Moreover, anyone who would come to us and try to put us back under the law to try to earn some aspect of our salvation and justification, we are to cast them away, throw them aside. The casting and throwing aside of Ishmael and his mother Hagar would be typological. It would foreshadow the fact that the Mosaic Covenant itself would come to an end. It comes to an end in what is left. There is no more genealogical principle. You don't enter by being born into the covenant. You enter by faith. The genealogical principle of Abraham's physical descendants was to ultimately lead to the singular offspring, Paul has already said. And now that that singular offspring has done, what's left? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So this is, again, another place where I think the, our, our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters go wrong. Uh, they're... they're we're not to baptize infants because they don't enter the covenant simply through being born. Right? That was an old covenant thing, but it is no more. You enter the covenant by being born again. By the Spirit of God, born of the Spirit, a child of promise, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners are truly saved graciously. By the instrument of faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. And so we are to resist those who would take us captive again. We are to cast out the slave woman, so to speak. Rejecting and slaving legalistic religion. Whether it's Judaizers or any who come in like manner. Suggesting that faith in Christ is insufficient grounds for receiving God's blessings of life. And again, this will come to you and will assault your joy and confidence. As you start to labor under the law and try to obey it and be good enough so that you're confident that you will get in when you die and stand before God. This is not where we are to put our hope. We put our hope solely in Christ Jesus and what he has done. That his salvation is sufficient to bring us safely home to glory. That we are indeed sons and heirs of God through our union with Christ, which comes by faith alone. And we dare not set this aside and try to go about it in some other sinful way to try to obtain that blessing through our sinful efforts and works. As we will see next time, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And though we are speaking of things that are difficult, and we are considering even the whole flow of 
redemptive history and, and how this all fits together. Father, we pray that you would illuminate our understanding by your spirit. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we can read it, that we can study it. Father, I pray that you would help us to persevere in that and to do so with great joyfulness and gladness and and patience and perseverance in it. Father, we thank you for what your word speaks very clearly to us, that one is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Father, I pray that we would all rest ourselves here, even as we are very aware of our sinful failures and fallings of even this day, let alone the entirety of our lives. Father, though these sins grieve us, and yet at the same time we know they don't grieve us even as they ought to grieve us. Father, as we desire righteousness, Father, may our confidence ultimately be not in the fruit that comes to us, but our confidence to be in Christ Jesus and what he has done. Father, increase our assurance and our confidence, knowing that you are a a God who saves to the uttermost those who look to the Son. So, Father, I pray that every person here would truly believe in Jesus Christ. Father, give us wisdom and discernment that we would not be enslaved again, but indeed preserve in this freedom and be preserved in it and rejoice in all that you have done for us in and through your Son and by your Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.